0: Comes down to this. Six seconds to play in Super Bowl 34. What do you call it? 4377 blast. It has never happened in Super Bowl history for a team to score on the last play of regulation. First and goal to go. Rams 23, Titans 16. All right, guys. Last play of the game. McNair will work out of the shotgun. McNair drops, throws right side for Dyson, he dives for the end zone! Didn't make it. He came up one yard short, didn't make it! Some of my friends have told me that baseball is a game of inches, and I want you to know today that football is a game of yards, which is just one more reason it's a better game. Than baseball, and and, uh, all of the Christians said amen to that, right? In in football, you have four downs to gain ten yards. And and I was walking through some of my points with some of uh, my staff, and particularly one female staff in the in the room kept asking questions. Like, you don't understand the general premise of the game, right? And 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 as we worked through it, she ended up saying, No, I, I don't. And so our team put together a little video called Idiot's Football so that you can understand the premise of what we're talking about. Because i got bigger premises I want to make that are tied to this little simple illustration. So you need to understand the game of football this morning. Watch this if you would. The aim of the game is move the ball into the opponent's end zone to score a touchdown. and extra point. This is achieved by moving the ball down the field in a series of plays or down. They can do this either by passing the ball through the air from quarterback to receiver or by a running back rushing the ball along the ground. The offense must move the ball at least 10 yards downfield every four plays in order to keep possession of the ball and earn another four downs to drive towards the opponent's end zone. Helpful to anybody today? I just want to be a teacher, and I want to help you. Uh, The title of the message today is Moving the Sticks. And when we say moving the sticks, it's crucial that you understand this premise that that these are the sticks, right? And and in football, uh, this is put where the ball is on the sideline so that the referee knows where the ball is and everybody understands it. Then that stick is put there at that place. There's a chain that attaches these two poles together that's 10 yards long. And, And so they pull it tight so that they know this is where you gain another first down. Unbelievable to me that in 1960 whatever we put a man on the moon, and this is still the way we do this uh, today <laughs> with a 10-yard chain. Why is there not a chip in the ball that tells you he got the first down or didn't get the first down? Why do we have to measure it off every time? But but we have to measure it off, and this is still the system that we use today. So it's first and 10 today. We borrowed these from our local uh, high school, Broken Arrow uh, High School, which is uh, if you go there, we cheer you on today. We were trying to decide which high school to use. And we decided to use the one that has never won the state championship, as to be fair uh, to them. And so we, we chose Broken Arrow. But but this is first and ten. And so let's say we ran a play and, and we got five yards. Now it's second and five, right? We got second down and, and we get three more chances to go the four, full five yards. One more play. Now it's third and say for example one, right? Then we cross the line and we get a first down. That moves the sticks from where the ball currently is to where ten yards gains us a. Another first down. Crucial that you understand this for the sermon today, right? Moving the sticks. In fact, everybody say, moving the sticks. That was, that's what we're talking about today. In fact, put your hands together and thank the chain gang here. And. and uh, And an offense, listen, if you keep moving the sticks on offense and you keep going and going and going, you're getting closer and closer and closer to the end zone. So really the whole goal of the offense is to keep moving the ball or moving the sticks down the field. And in life, especially in finances, we said that the goal is the end zone, right? That's where you want to live is in the end zone. And end zone living is taking care of your finances with the end in mind. Okay? Hence, end zone, right? You're taking care of your finances with the end in mind. It means that you live in such a way that you're ready whatever comes your way. It is taking care of your wallet today so that it will take care of you tomorrow. And so financially, moving the sticks down the field means that we live in this lifestyle we introduced last week called the 10-10-80 lifestyle. And we started talking about it. We said the first 10 is the tithe that we bring, we don't give, we bring back to God, right? The second 10 is saving for your future, believing in your heart that God has bright days ahead of you and for you in the future, so you put some back back For your future. And then the 80, the remaining 80, you live off the rest. And all through this book and all through scripture, we we are given advice about giving, about finances, about money, about our stuff. It's it's all through the scriptures. In fact, you go to the wisdom literature and you go to the book of Proverbs and you, you can't turn the page without finding some bit of wisdom about our stuff and about our money and about our giving. In fact, go to one chapter today and I'll show you three examples in one chapter. Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21 And in verse 5, it says, careful planning puts you ahead in the long run. Careful planning puts you ahead in the long run, but hurry and scurry puts you further and further behind. Jump jump down to verse 17. Those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. Verse 20, uh, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down fools gulp theirs down and so end zone living is different from red zone living in many ways but primarily it's different in terms of preparation in the way that we prepare but because if you don't prepare in other words, storing up what you need in the future, uh, then you'll be like those who gulp it all down, right? You'll be like those who try to cut corners and make a fast buck. You'll be like those who love luxury and spend it uh, on luxury but can't afford it. And red zone living means that you are anxious and stressed and in the red. End zone living is where you have properly prepared for where you are in life. And so there's a big, big difference. And in football, in the game of football, if you're not ready for the end zone, you likely are not going to win the game. In fact, a team's success in the game of football almost always depends on their red zone efficiency, their ability once they get the ball inside the 20 to actually put it in the goal because you could start at your goal line and drive the ball 80 yards down the field. In fact, you could drive the ball 99 yards down the field and be all the way at the goal line and if you can't get that last yard like the Titans in in Super Bowl 34, you're not in the end zone and you're stuck in the red zone and I don't want that for any one of you. In fact, my desire, why would I spend three weeks on this subject matter? is because my desire is for every one of you to be in the end zone and to live in the end zone not stuck and stressed out in the red zone and last week we talked about first and ten right we talked about that down called first and ten that we bring God what's first and we bring God one-tenth of all that he has blessed us with And, and when you start with your best first and ten drive you're almost guaranteed success Almost, but you can't fumble the ball because the next 10 is incredibly important to your future as well, and that's savings. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to start by giving you a working definition of saving. Okay, here it is. Write this down. Saving equals delaying today so you're ready tomorrow. That's all it is delaying today so that you're ready tomorrow. In other words, it means you put off some spending now so that you have some to spend tomorrow when you need it. And we don't all do a good job at this, by the way. And here's what i found. I met several couples in the guest reception in between services and and, and here's what I have found to be true in marriage and and, and just in general. It's not always true, but it's almost exclusively true. God typically puts a saver with a spender. And and, uh, just to work each other out, right? And, and to, Because he's interested in the exercises you go through to get on the same page w- with one another. We don't all do a good job at this. In fact, nearly half, I want you to think through that for a minute, half of all Americans could not afford one $400 emergency. Nearly half of our whole country could not afford one $400 emergency. And some of you on our campuses, you hear that And your throat is getting tight. And and you're beginning to sweat. And and, and you're nervous about what I'm talking about because you're in that boat right now. And you never meant to get in that boat. You don't know how you ended up in that boat, but you're in that boat. Did you know that 30% of Americans report a zero savings balance? Zero. 30%. One out of every three people in our country have zero money in savings. 62% have less than $1,000 in all of their bank accounts. In fact, 38 million households, and I want you to think through that for a moment because it's households, it's not people. 38 million households are really, really struggling with this and live from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. And so real quick, what I want to do is I want to give you seven plays, okay? I don't know if you watch watch football, you've seen what I'm talking about. I made one actually, but I forgot to bring it out. A, A laminated playbook. One page, a quick reference guide, and the coaches carry this. I've been on many sidelines in Division I football games and, and have some friends who coach in Division I football games, and I've looked at their, their, their quick reference guides before. In fact, I've taken pictures secretly of some of their quick reference guides so I can run it in youth football. And, and, and I'm looking at these, these plays, but what you need to know is these things are divided into boxes. Quick reference, so that the coach, in in a moment's notice, could look at this and call a play. And so there's a box that says first and ten. And there's five or six, seven plays that they are efficient at when the ball is first and ten. Second and short, second and long, third and short, third and long, right? And so they look in this box when the play is appropriate, and they call one of their four, five, six plays that they're really good at. Now, what you also need to know is a few years ago, everybody started doing this, when, when they would call their plays, but because one team known as the Patriots cheats. <laughs> and, 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 and they learn to read lips. And they learned to understand the play calling. And they knew what the other team was going to run. And, and, they, and when they couldn't do that anymore, they had to let air out of the ball so that their <laughs> receivers could catch it. But, but they call the play. And so what I'm doing is I'm giving you uh, seven plays that you can run to move the sticks down the field in your life. Now, I don't want to make you nervous with these seven plays, but I, I'm just telling you way out far in advance. Okay, that's what I'm doing. This is a lifelong, a lifelong list of plays, okay? These seven plays are your whole life. And so if you're a teenager and you're not even to stick number one, th- then don't get nervous about this, okay? Or if you're middle age and you're, it's like stick two, th- then don't get nervous about it. Just set the goal to accomplish the next goal and then run the next play, okay? So this is progressive over your lifetime. And I want you to write these down to keep the m- sticks moving to financially end up in the end zone, okay? And it, all of this, by the way, these seven plays come from Dave Ramsey's baby steps, And if you've not been to a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University class, I would encourage you to sign up for one. It is life-altering, life-changing. And however many weeks it is, like nine weeks or something like that, the number every time we run this class is crazy. I'll get an email with four or five bullets that will say, this class, this semester paid off $180,000 in debt. That that they cut up 68 credit cards. That they, da, 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 da. And it's just crazy progress. In just nine weeks, it happens in these people's lives, and their lives are turned upside down. And so, in fact, we're starting them this week at three of our campuses. Here at Battle Creek and uh, uh, Midtown on, uh, Battle Creek on Wednesday, Owasso on Wednesday, and Midtown on Tuesday. And you don't have to attend any of those campuses to attend the class at any one of those campuses. But here they are. Let's write these down, okay? Number one, save a $1,000 emergency fund. This can be in cash or it can be in an account, okay? But don't touch it. Never touch it. Put it in an envelope. If it's cash, write in all caps emergency only. Stick it in the back of the deep freeze, okay? And where nobody can get to it and nobody will touch it. And some of you hear me say the words emergency fund, and you think, that's not fun. This sermon is not going to be fun. Fund is never fun, right? Can't we save for something fun like Disney World or Christmas presents? Okay, of course. Save for Disney World and save for an expensive vacation. But plan ahead so that when you do it, you don't have to put it on the card. Okay, that's the point. But if you plan for a vacation without planning for an emergency, could be, probably will happen, that an emergency will derail your vacation because you didn't have the emergency fund, right? And worse, it could derail essentials for you in in life. And so I'm not really talking about how to afford a living room uh, furniture set later on in the year. I'm talking about preparing for a rainy day. It is going to rain. Hear me. I've got all the faith in the world, and my faith tells me it's gonna rain. It rains on the righteous, and it rains on the unrighteous. A rainy day is coming, okay? So number two, pay off all your debt but your house. All your debt. And, and, and I want you to hear me on this because it's really, really spiritual. And it's really important for you to hear me say this. At the end of the day, debt is telling God that his current level of provision is not enough. It gets really quiet when you make a statement like that, doesn't it? Think through that for a moment. God, you got your wires crossed, you don't know what you're doing. You set me at this current level of provision. I need, I deserve, I should have more. So I'm going to go borrow the money and put it on the card. The Bible is very clear that the borrower is servant or slave to the lender, which is problematic for Christians, right? Because we have been set free. We're no longer slaves. We've been set free from bondage. Yet we put ourselves back in bondage with debt on a regular basis. Now, I want you to hear me today. uh, understand this. Not all debt is bad debt. Okay, some debt is good debt for you to borrow, to have a home, to raise your family in that you can pay for and you gain equity in over time. If you're starting a business, it may require for you to borrow some money in order to start a business and bet on yourself and believe that God's going to grow this business. Not all debt is bad debt. The Bible does not prohibit debt. It just says you will be a servant to the lender. Not all debt is bad debt, but all debt is debt. You hear me? All millennials, young people hear me on this. I want you to hear me. Not all debt is bad debt, but all debt is debt. In fact, a conversation recently with a recent college grad who who in the conversation said, I'm debt-free. That's glorious, right? I mean, you you finish college, you're going into the workforce, you're debt-free. And in the conversation, I realized they said, no, 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 but I do have $140,000 in school debt. You're not debt-free if you have $140,000 in school debt. Do you hear me? Thinking that way means you've taken your cues from the government who is well-known for how well they handle money. Taking your cues from the government is a bad, 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 bad plan. And and, and so some of you are in debt. And let me just love you today by telling you the truth. Some of you are in debt because of a mistake or some mistakes that you made. And, And... I want you to hear me out of grace say to you, everybody makes mistakes. Some of you are in debt because of sin in your life or sins in your life. And I want to love you today by telling you it wasn't the unpardonable sin. And so my advice to you today, based on the situation that you are in today, is to quit berating yourself. Quit beating yourself up and funnel all of that negative energy into something positive in your life and start paying your debt off. Evaluate where you really are, where you really want to go, and start taking steps in that direction. Take all of your debts and list them from smallest to largest. Make minimum payments on all of them, but make extra payments on the smallest one. And start gaining some steam. And when you pay that small one off, it's a victory. It's a little moral victory that happens in your heart and happens in your life. And one little victory, you never know what God does with one little victory. He will blow a full head of steam into the sail, and He will get you excited about this process. And you start making steps and start accomplishing those things and pay off that debt, okay? Number three, save three to six months expenses. Three to six months. This is an addition, by the way, to your emergency fund. This is for the long term. This is in case you get laid off. This is in case uh, you get fired or you get hurt or some extreme emergency, right? That, That you need to figure that out. And so you figure out, what do I spend per month? Multiply that times three, and then times four, and then times five, and then times six. See, it's multiple steps that you get to where you would have in the savings account, where you can get your hands on it immediately, three to six months of expenditures. And you lock it away, just like you do the emergency fund. Lock it away where nobody gets to it. And so if the emergency fund is a pillow that you can lay your head on at night and rest, this... Three to six months expenses saved away is your solid slate double line vault, okay? So that you don't end up in catastrophe when a small hiccup happens. Number four, save for retirement. Okay, Now you're moving the sticks. You're moving down. Remember, this is a lifelong journey. When you get to this place where you've taken care of those things, the next step is to begin to save for your retirement. Start putting money away in your 401k, in your 403b, in your IRA or your Roth, and, and make it your goal to eventually, for some it would be a long goal, right? Make it your goal to eventually uh, max out whatever is allowed by the government. I was 18 years old when I started putting money in a 401k. And, and what i want you to know is why would you do that at 18 years old because i had a dad who understood this and he showed me this and so when i was making 17 dollars a week i was putting money away for my retirement and, and so you need to use by the way all tax deferred options to your benefit a pre-tax dollars that can go into some retirement fund is big big savings in in the long run for your life and so you save for a rainy day we talked about it but i want you to save for a sunny day That's fun, by the way, for those of you who are party animals. That's fun, save for a sunny day. In fact, I was talking to uh, one of our staff members, Keith Walker. Keith is the campus pastor at the South Tulsa campus. In fact, at South Tulsa, just put your hands together for Keith Walker. Uh, He's doing a phenomenal job on on our staff and has been with us for a number of years. But there was a day, I I don't know the number. He would correct me because I have no idea. Five, six years ago. Where where Keith had a major health battle and had some serious cancer and through the health battle went into some debt and made some terrible financial decisions and it came crashing down on him and he ended up in a very desperate place where he ended up in my office in tears and the truth is is that he needed to borrow my car to go take something because he didn't have one that would run at that moment. That's an embarrassing situation. And in that moment, he looked at me through tears, and and he thought perhaps we would let him go. I said, Keith, listen to me. We're going to take all this negative energy, and we're going to funnel it towards something positive. And and the same steps that got you in here are going to get you out of it. And you're going to go meet with a financial planner. And he went to meet with a financial planner. I said, it's required. And he met with him week after week after week, month after month after month. They set some goals, and they started accomplishing some major things in his life. And, and, And all of a sudden, he would come to me every so many months. and go, we took care of that one. We took care of that one. We paid that one off. We finished that. I'm so excited, and I'm saving for the future, and I believe God's got a bright future. And he came to this point where all of a sudden God is blessing him tremendously, and he's taking care of his family. And it's so fun to watch this journey happen over the last five or six years. And you know what he said to me last week? He said, you know, there were many, many days I got on a plane to go to Houston, Texas, to go to the MD Anderson Hospital to to get treatments and to be worked on and to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. But but there are now days in my life... Last year, I got on a plane and flew to Houston, Texas, only to connect to another plane to take me to Cancun for a vacation on money we had in the account, and God took care of us. And so I just want you to see that this can happen. Number five, here it is save for a college fund. The best graduation gift you can give your kids is freedom. From debt. If they can walk the line without having to walk with school loans, you have blessed them tremendously. You are setting them up for success. One of the most grateful things I've got in my life is is parents who got me out of college debt-free. And I married a woman who got her parents got her out of college debt-free, which is unbelievable head start. It's an incredible blessing to, to go there. Now, let me just say this to you. I, I, I don't have the money my parents had, and, my, and, and we don't have the money Meredith's parents had today. And so we're having conversations with our 16, 15, 13, and 11, 10-year-old year kids today. And, and some of the conversations go like this. We love you. <laughs> but we do not owe you a $50,000 a year education. We do not owe that to you. And so we will scrimp and we will get by and we will save and your mom will drive a car that's got 200,000 miles on it and we will continue to figure things out to put money back so that you can go to college and we will help you. We expect you to work while you're in college and have a job. Scholarships can offset the hours that you work. We will help you pay for a college we have heard of. We will help you pay for a college that where you will get a marketable degree which you can get a job with afterwards, right? And so we walk this out. Parents call me these last few weeks. I've heard crazy things from parents these last week. One parent said to me, hey, my daughter doesn't even have a car yet, even though we have money to buy her a car, because she said she will only drive this car, and we can't afford this car. Uh, and, and what do we do? I said, you know the answer. Get her a new pair of shoes. Right. Another parent called me this week and said, hey, I, I, my kid's telling me she will, he will only go to this college. They're not going to consider any other college. They'll only apply to this college. What's your advice? My advice is, listen, we don't let the inmates run the asylum. That's bad planning, right? And, and, and so finances come into play in education and every 11th grader wakes up to the reality of the real world that i can dream about whatever college i want to dream about but the truth is finances are going to be a consideration when it's time to go to school and i would say to you it's changed a lot in the last 15 years it's changed a lot college degree used to meant you get a job immediately that is not true today in fact it used to matter where you went to college right in fact I I was taught I went to Washita Baptist University by the way I was a great student and my daughter said I'm not considering Washita Baptist University I said why not and and she said I'd rather go to a good school I said I "I think there are better schools out there I said I don't know I went to Ouachita I got people went to Harvard work for me (laughs) that's a true story and, and, and what i want to tell you is, is at the end of the day it doesn't matter nearly as much as, as it used to where you went to school employers want you to be able to do the job and if you can do the job with a ged or you can do the job with a phd they just want you to do the job and to do it well you got to consider this and consider putting money back so that college is an option number six pay off your house early okay this is long time down the road but pay off your house early All your debt's taken care of now, right? All of it. So pay off the house. Figure that thing out. Your house is not only, I hear this all the time, it's my biggest asset. That's true. But it's not only your biggest asset. It's also your biggest liability if you don't own this thing free and clear. So get your payments under control. Get a good interest rate. Refinance. Shorten the tenure. And get out of that and get free from it. Number seven, build your wealth. Build your wealth. This is where it gets fun, by the way. Start investing, you start helping others, you start doing fun stuff with it. You build your wealth and you watch it grow over time and you watch and see what the Lord will do there. And this is where, by the way, you really, really start to enjoy your money. This is where you become super crazy, outrageous, generous. All your emergencies are handled, your kids are handled, your future is set, and now you're truly living in the end zone. You're not just staring at it, you're living in it, right? And those are the plays in the playbook that will move you down this lifelong process of getting your finances in order and into the end zone. And the real game plan, we're not changing it, by the way, we're just getting better at it. The the game plan is 10-10-80. And last week we covered the first 10. If you weren't here last week, please, please, Go back and watch it online. These messages are not independent. They build on one another. It's incredibly important that you go back and watch last week. But we talked about the first and the tenth, the tithe that we bring to God, first and and best, right? Those are the words we use. And today I want to give you some ways to be better at the next ten, which is savings, okay? And and some of you are thinking, man, pastor, I would love to be debt-free. It is not a want or a lack of a want in me that is keeping me from going from debt to savings. It's that you don't know what to do, okay? And so what I want to do is give you four downs real quick, just four practical downs that you can start today to start moving this ball down the field and be better at savings. Number one, cut unnecessary expenses. Figure out what they are and and cut them and and, and. Cut them out of your plan altogether. That gym membership, that Netflix account, that Spotify premium, that iTunes spending, a latte every three or four hours, it's five bucks. But just figure this thing out, right? What can you do without? Eat out less, wear the same clothes longer, uh, drive that car a longer period of time. Just figure out where these things are and cut it. And let me ask you a favor. Write this down. Write this down, write this down, write this down because you need to come back to this. There is a big, in fact, write the word big in all caps. There is a big difference between spending and saving. Big difference. You say, that seems so simple. It's not for everybody. Occasionally, one of my children will come home with bags. And she has been to the mall. And and, and she has multiple bags. and, and, And she will say, Daddy, you wouldn't believe it. Everything in the mall was on sale today. And I bought some stuff, and I saved X number of dollars. To which I say, Catherine, say it with me. There is a big difference between saving and spending. And we have to get the flannel graph out. I have it stored in the shop. I go get it out, and I bring it out and set it up, call all the kids in for the lesson. And, and, and here's the lesson. There's hand motions that go along with it and everything. Like, Dad, and I say, oh, no way. We all have to understand this all the time. There is a big difference between saving and spending. When you save, watch this, money comes to you. It comes to you. You walk away with money. Did somebody walk up to you at the mall and give you money? No, Dad. Okay, then we didn't save. We spent. Because when you spend, money goes away from you, right? And so let's all do this together, right? To you and away from you. And and there's a big, big difference between spending and, and savings. And so write this down as well. This is another nugget for you. You can admire without having to acquire revolutionary to some people, right? You can admire without having to acquire, to which I say to, you know, my daughters all the time, go to the mall. Try it on. Love it. Take a picture with it. But then put it back on the rack and walk away because you can admire without having to have it. About a year ago, I was thinking about this purchase, and and, uh, one of my friends who who understands these principles, uh, he he said to me, Alex, don't, don't buy that. And I said, why? He said, because I have one. Just, just use mine. Just hear me. You, you don't need to do that. Don't buy work, and don't buy more effort, and don't buy more energy. You can just use mine. And here's what he said. And I actually left that meeting and went and wrote it down in my office. And I have it on a postcard next to my computer. It says, he who dies with the least amount of keys wins. I think through that. He said it to me, and I thought, that is so good. He who dies with the least amount of keys wins. He said, visit mine, and you don't need to take care of it. You don't need to, you know, et cetera. You just walk away. And, And he said, you need to understand this. And so let's just all say it together. You can admire without having to acquire. Let's say it ready everybody every campus you can admire without having to acquire all right number two set some goals set some goals this is where it gets fun by the way just start dreaming planning plan ahead where do you want to be at age 40 50 60 65 years old and then get a paper and a pen and do the math how much do i need and then divide by how many years you got left to 40 50 60 65 years old and set some goals start tracking first down. Right? It's important to see progress. And so track the first downs. And by the way, I said it a moment ago, this can become very motivational. When you hear I'm 80% of the way towards a goal, it, it energizes you, right? And like, okay, I can get the, I'm gonna get there tomorrow. Right? And so I'm gonna start making progress on this. Number three, make it automatic. Make it automatic. Write this phrase down under this point. There is tremendous power in advanced decision making tremendous power in advanced decision making. And write this phrase down too. Margin matters. It matters, it matters, it matters, it matters. What do I mean? I did several series on the subject of margin uh, over the years, but this is what that means. That my income is going up, 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 right? And my lifestyle tends to chase it. You need to leave your lifestyle here while your income goes up and create margin. Margin matters in your life, right? And make this thing automatic. Decision-making you did up front. Set up automatic transfers from your payroll, from your bank account, to your tithe, to your savings account, and to your 401k. And it's automatic. In fact, probably 13 years ago, we were on our 10-year wedding anniversary, and we we saved up and we went to uh, somewhere outside of Cancun. And I was laying on a beach, and while I was laying in a lawn chair on a beach, I read this book that somebody had given me called Automatic Millionaire. Great read. Fantastic read. And I don't remember all of the details, but here's what I remember. It was a husband and wife who both taught public school. And they made these things automatic where they set up automatic tithe, automatic savings, automatic retirement and they lived their life on the rest and they never looked at it and they never questioned it and they retired at 59 years old as millionaires, as public school teachers automatic is the key it's a great book by the way and a phenomenal read you'll read it in a couple of hours and, and, and it's great principles but make this automatic that way you don't have to think about it right and you're not tempted to not do it because it's out of sight out of mind you don't need to make these decisions weekly people you make this decision to say this is what we're going to do and set it up to happen and then you let it go and you don't have to worry about it you don't have to remake that decision every single week here's number four get a budget and this is where I lose some of you, right? Get a budget. But let me just define budget. Budget is just telling your money where to go ahead of time. That's all it is. Instead of wondering where it went, you tell it where to go, right? Some of you are told by people that, you know, you accidentally cut off on the road. They tell you where to go. <laughs> Happens to me regularly, right? And, and, and I'm always like, I can't. I got Jesus in here. I can't go to hell. I can't do that. I'm going to heaven. Thanks for the advice, but I I can't go there. And and in the process, I can't go there, but you've got to tell your money where it can't go. And you have to tell it ahead of time instead of wondering where it went. You say, no, this is where the money's going to go. There's a word. Remember we looked at it last week in Genesis and the first few chapters of Genesis? Rain. Reign over creation. Reign over this world. Reign over the stuff, right? Take control over it. And and we're going to do this next week. Look at the budget. But remember, 10, 10, 80. Bring 10 to God, save 10 for your future, and live off the 80. By the way, learning to live off the 80 is completely, I mean, giving the 10 to savings is completely dependent upon learning how to tell the 80 where to go. They work together. And and that's what we're going to cover that next week. Bring somebody with you. If you know somebody who's ever had a nickel, or ever will have a nickel, next week's going to be crazy practical advice for them. Okay, so everybody you've ever met, th- this is going to be crazy practical advice for them. So bring somebody. And while I'm on that, let me, my ADD brain, just chase that rabbit for a minute. <laughs> and say, this church was built, and the DNA of this church from the very birth of it, in the beginning of it, was outward Outward focused. And it was not inward, it was always about those yet to be reached and those that need Jesus and those that need a relationship with Christ and those that need life change and those that need a church home. And and over the time, we've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm afraid that that evangelistic zeal is sliding. And and I don't like it. And and I just want to say to you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to implore you, all of you should be investing daily in somebody's life to earn the right to invite them to your church where they may come to know Jesus Christ. And if you attend here four weeks out of the month, you, you, you're in the top A club, okay? I mean, top A club. Church is no longer four weeks a month in our culture. Now, two people think that, you know, we're very active in the church if I go two weeks out of the month. If you come four weeks out of the month, I would say to you, then two weeks out of the month, you ought to have somebody with you that you've been investing in, you've been bringing in. Look, Battle Creek, you look around and go, where would they sit? We'll make room. Speaking of that, I need 100 of you to commit to go worship in the chapel at 11 o'clock to make room for the people we're going to bring, okay? And so let's stay outward focused. Let's not make this about us, and let's not go, well, we're a big church. We can just sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to come to that in a minute. Let's go after people who are desperate for the life change that you and I have experienced because of Jesus and because of what God's doing in our church. Deal? Deal? Can you shake your head this way and say, deal, Pastor? I'll preach it again if you want, if you're not going to make a deal with me, right? <laughs> Can't move on until we, until we say, yes, we're going to do this, and we're all going to be on board. But today, what I want to do for the remaining time is put some bullets in your gun and some ammo in your gun so that when uh, your, your, your life comes to that place, you've saved and you're ready for it, okay? And intentionally, I talked about the practical up front. Almost always, I do the spiritual up front and the practical at the end because I want you to leave with some real-life things to do, practical tips for your life that, that take these principles of Scripture and apply them to your life. I flipped it today upside down. And the reason I did that is because the spiritual is so incredibly important that I want this to be the last thing you're thinking about when you walk out here today. And the idea of saving money, it's very wise and it's very biblical. But it only works, hear me, it only works if your heart is in the right place. And it only works if you to store treasure here on earth. It only works if your real treasure is ultimately in heaven. And so turn over to Luke chapter 12, and I want to show you this story that Jesus told. It's a parable. He made the story up, but it comes right out of the lips of Jesus. And when he was challenged on the subject of finances, he, he answered with this story, okay? And somebody's asking him about an inheritance, and, and he, he works out this story. Verse 16, let's look at it. Then he, that's Jesus, he told a story, right? He made the story up. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Now, I want you to see what Jesus has done so far. He's got the character, a rich man. He's got money. He's got a fertile farm that produces crops, not just crops, but fine crops. Are you with Jesus in his story? He's telling a story. He wants you to come along with him. And he said to himself, that is the rich man, What should I do? I don't have enough room for all of my crops. In other words, this man did not have a sowing problem. He didn't have a reaping problem. He had a storage problem. That's the problem he had, right? He had no trouble getting a return on his investment. He had no trouble getting a bumper uh, year of crops. The problem was he had too much, okay? Show of hands, who wants that problem? All of us, right? We want that problem. I got too much. I don't know what to do. God, would you, would you speak to me, God? I, got to, I don't know what to do with all of it. And, and so Jesus keeps going with the story in verse 18. Then he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and other goods. Parentheses. This is a very wise thing to do. I've spent 20 minutes setting you up to understand this is a very wise thing for you to do. To prepare for later in life. This man is very wise. Jesus is not saying that saving is a bad thing. What Jesus is getting at is the heart and the intention. And he turns this on intentions. He said saving with bad intentions is a problem. It's a heart issue. This is really about this man's heart. He turns the corner, verse 19. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend... You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, he was content that he was able to do it all by himself. And he says, I'll say to myself, I just want to say to you, if you do that, if you speak to yourself in first person pronoun, I'll say to myself, you need a counselor. (laughs) That's weird, okay? You talk to the Holy Spirit, you let the Holy Spirit speak to me. But the moment I start referring to, and I'll say to Alex, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you got problems, okay? And so this man was content with what he had done, was good enough for him, and he allowed, watch this, he allowed his wealth to drive his heart rather than his heart to drive his wealth. And that's a heart issue. And that's where Jesus is going. And the issue is an issue of greed. And it's what Jesus is addressing in this story. And he's asked about an inheritance and he responds with this story. But what he said before the story, by the way, is where the real warning is contained. Back up and look at verse 15. Look what he says. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. In other words, we are not the sum of what we accumulate. The substance of our identity is the children of God, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's not what we have that's so crucial. It's who we are. And so when you look back at those verses, count how many times he said I and my, or me, right? I mean, just over and over, the personal pronouns. pronouns my crops, my barns, my goods, my M&Ms, my stuff, my, 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 my myself, Right? and his identity was found in his possessions and in his stuff and what he had and instead of uh, being found in Christ. it was found in what he could do in his own power, and he needed to shift his focus off of himself and onto Christ. That's what Jesus was getting at, and Jesus turns the story, which he's making up as he goes, right, to, to focus on the man's relationship with God. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, You fool. That's strong. And that's not, in case you, you know, you're raised in modern vernacular, that's not a good thing. Like, hey, what's up, fool? <laughs> this ain't that. You don't want to be called fool by God, right? And God says, you fool. A- a- and he says to him, you will die this very night. You didn't put your identity in Christ. You're going to die. Then who will get everything you worked for? The NIV says it better. It says this, that you stored up for yourself. What's going to happen to what you stored up For yourself. Verse 21 Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Every financial advisor I've ever met with, every single one uses this phrase because it's like common language among financial advisors think long term. You have to think long term. You don't put money in these investments and then make emotional decisions uh, based on what's happening to the market or what's happening in the society or happening in the culture. It's like watching paint dry. Leave it alone. Right? You you got to think. You buy low, you sell high. You can't exit on an emotional decision when everything is low. You got to ride it out and think long term. This guy was thinking long term. He just wasn't thinking long enough. And I want you to hear me today when I say to you, your portfolio needs to have the word eternity in front of it. You need to think long term but you need to think long enough into eternity. In others, we don't just plan for the 40, 50, 60, 70 years we got here on this earth. We plan forever and ever and ever and ever, right? And this man put his wealth ahead of his relationship with God, and that's what made him a fool in the process. And, and so as you move through this story and you look at the story and you understand the story and you watch it play out, he thought that all the grain and all the stuff that he had were more important than having a rich and intimate relationship with God, the one who created him the one who gave him the ability to make the wealth the one who provided for him and so we have this ownership myth in our culture we think we own our stuff we don't own our stuff god does and we just manage it god still owns it but but it goes even further than that that the wealth that i manage is not all about me and it's not all for me It's all about him and what he wants to do with it and through it. He directs it, right? So there is an earthly rich and there is a God rich. And there's an earthly poor and there is a God poor. And a lot of people are earthly rich but God poor. And our goal as the children of God is to be God rich whether we're earthly rich or not, right? And this man was earthly rich but God poor not, hear me, because he had a lot of stuff. That was not his problem. His problem was that he let his heart follow his stuff into those barns. And so no matter what treasure on earth looks like for you, a little pile or a big pile, let's put our heart in heaven's treasury. And part of that, by the way, is learning to be content at the level of provision we're at today. That's what Paul said in Philippians 4. I've learned to be content with nothing, and I've learned to be content with everything. Which, by the way, there's nothing super spiritual about nothing. I meet some Christians that are like, man, I'm like loving Jesus. I got nothing. And and, and I'm a martyr, and it's a complex, and if I ever have anything, I feel like I need to apologize for having it because I'm a child of God. There's nothing super spiritual about having nothing. Hear me. The devil has lied to you. Enjoy the blessing of God on your life. But he also said, I've enjoyed having a lot, and I've learned to be content with a lot, which means It's okay for a Christian to have a lot, right? You're just not hung here. And wherever these things shift up and down, you learn to be content and you live beneath your means. That's the process that Paul is talking about in this whole story, that I've learned to be content. And and most of you were not here in the early days of the church. This August, will be 14 years old. And there were several years in those first several years where money was a big issue. When I was invited to come be the pastor of this church, there were millions of dollars in debt. And 120 people, including the babies, we didn't give anything, by the way. <laughs> we were rationing diapers. I was like, you can't change the diaper until the end of the class. Change it before mom and dad pick them up. But you, they got to sit in the poop for the 45 minutes before, right? Because we couldn't afford to buy the diapers. We couldn't pay the people. We, pay was an issue through the whole process. And there were common meetings employment staff meetings with people on our payroll where we would say to the staff, who is gonna volunteer not to be paid this month? And there were several, by the way, who volunteered to do that. And there was a six-month window where Meredith and I gave every penny we made for six months. And you say, why would you do that? Because our heart was here and it's what God directed, and it was what God was saying. That's why we did that, and we had to learn to live at a different level of provision at that point in our lives, and there were things that changed, and we ate different, and we didn't go out to eat, and we were concerned about this, and we drank water if we did go out to eat, and there were we had to learn to be content at a level below where we had been. When we came to pastor a little old church, we had to learn to live at a, a level that was different than big church youth ministry we had lived in for years and years and years before, and so the point is, is these levels go up and down in your lifetime, right? You, you start to figure it out, and then you got a baby, and that level's coming back right down. Diapers are expensive. Formula is crazy expensive. It's like crack in that can, right? <laughs> and, and, you, and you watch all this happen. Then you have another one, right? And then you start to figure it out. Then you have another, and the levels change throughout life. Then they start going to college, and the levels change. And what Paul is saying is, the level is not the issue. It's learning to be content at whatever level you're at. And this is an idea of two ideas that clash in our society. And the first one's called materialism. And materialism begins where your income ends. Write that down. It begins where your income ends. It begins where my income and where your income ends. And so what is materialism? Materialism is a preoccupation with things. That's what it is. It is not a tangible commodity. It is an intangible condition of your heart. It's in here. The issue of materialism, hear me, it is not an issue of wealth. It's not an issue of riches, and it's not an issue of income. This has to do with what's in your heart, not what's in your wallet, materialism. And so let me ask you, you just, you know, define it for me. Where where is the ceiling and where is the area and where is the zone that causes somebody to have crossed over into materialism, right? What size home, what type of watch, what type of car, what label do they wear, what size portfolio, what kind of vacation destination uh, constitutes materialism? And the answer is we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. And the Bible doesn't tell us that on purpose, right? Because you don't know it and I don't know it. How can I tell if somebody's materialistic? You can't. You absolutely cannot. Why? But, but I can't call somebody materialistic when I don't know their heart, and I don't know their life, and I don't know their relationship with God, and you can't call me materialistic because you don't know my heart, and you don't know my life, and you don't know my relationship with God. We don't know. It's not tangible. It is intangible. It's in here, and we all, by the way, have a tendency to judge materialism as the next phase in life, one notch above us, right? Right? Nobody thinks they're materialistic. It's always the next phase when, when they have money, and then we move to this phase. But so did materialism, right? It moves. And so, if you live in a 2,000 square foot house, for you, the person who has 3,000 square foot is materialistic. But for the one who has a thousand square foot house, you're materialistic. Do you understand how this works? It's just the next rung down the down the ladder. And if you think about materialism and you remember materialism begins where your income ends, if you really think about it, think about like a big, huge airplane, right? And it's flying through the air, just through the air. And this big old plane is the plane of materialism. And it's got big wings and it's got an engine on either end uh, of each wing. What are the engines in the plane of materialism? Envy and greed. Envy and greed. It is not some external factor that makes you materialistic. It is the internal horsepower of envy and greed in your life. It is not the size of your bank account. It is not what's in your wallet. It's the presence of what's in your heart, envy and greed. And that's where the problem lies. And the bottom line is this. God wants to bless you. He is a blessor. He wants to bless you in all ways. He loves to bless you spiritually, but he also loves to bless you in your health. He loves to bless you in your relationships, in your job, in your schooling, in your career, and in your finances. And his blessing goes on and on and on and on, and it does not end. There's no end to it, but there is a cap that we can put on the blessing of God, and that cap is envy and greed. It's envy and greed. There's two masters, by the way. And the question is, which one are you going to serve? And which one will you make your money serve? Because I need you to hear this. In fact, you should write this down. Money always obeys. It always obeys. It always behaves. It's not unruly. And so that cousin you have that said, you know, the $200 he gave me last month, I was going to use it for the mortgage, but I had to burn it on this, that, and the other. And you could just look at your cousin and go, you're lying. My pastor told me so. Because money is not unruly. It does not burn a hole in your pocket and run off. It it obeys. The question is, is who's it obeying? Which master is it obeying? Jesus said it this way, right? That no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he finishes this with the weirdest statement of all the Bible. You cannot serve both God and money. He's setting us up, right? He's just moving through that whole thing. If I were going to finish the sentence, you cannot serve both God and the devil. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. And there's a spirit called the spirit of mammon is the word there. And I wish I had time to teach that to you today. I don't have time. But but you go all the way back to Babel and Babylon and the Tower of Babel and the spirit. And there's a principle that runs throughout Scripture that says the spirit, one or the other, attaches to money. It's either going to be the Holy Spirit when you do the God thing with it, or it's going to be the spirit of mammon. And you can't serve both the Holy Spirit and the spirit of mammon. Money, according to Jesus, can be used to do incredible things for the kingdom of God, to change people's lives. Yeah, in other words, you can use your money in the right way to do great things in people's lives you, you can use it in the kingdom of god you can use it for some tangible benefit in your own life like daily bread right what you live off of but you can also uh, enjoy some things from it there's not a problem there for the children of god to enjoy what god has blessed you with you can do incredible things both tangible and intangible it can provide for somebody coming to know christ In other words, you can use the treasure that you got here and has gone tomorrow, this monopoly money that we have in this world, you can use it to lead somebody to Christ. Isn't that good? Isn't that gracious that our Heavenly Father would allow us to do that? That God allows us to leverage this tool of money and treasure for goodness. And God knows that if you and I land in this sweet spot of his success, if we're zoned in, we bring some stuff to the storehouse, we save some stuff for our future, we spend some stuff, and we really begin to enjoy our stuff. And by doing so, we are influencing other people and we will build the greatest thing on planet Earth, which is the local church, in the process. And we'll have a blast doing it. And we'll enjoy the whole process. But when we give in to envy or greed, our wallet will serve materialism. And when we allow generosity to reign in our hearts, we're actually uh, serving God with, with our money. And the spirit on money is now the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, but when we use it for envy and greed, the Spirit is not the Spirit of God. But when we use it for God's use, there's an impositive and an incredible spirit on it. And by the way, generosity is the key to breaking the hold of materialism in our lives. And it's all about our hearts, right? And it's all about our spirits. This last week in my office, I was asked, or after the sermon last week, I was asked this question. Pastor, I get it. There's generosity over here and there's greed over here. What are the steps that I take from greed to generosity? How do I begin this process? In fact, I think the exact wording was, what's the bridge from greed to generosity? And I said this, and I think it's a good answer. The bridge is trusting God. The bridge is trusting God. And the first step on that bridge, by the way, is the tithe. Because I'm trusting God and saying, God, I'm going to trust you to live on 90 instead of 100. I'm going to do this your way. I'm going to trust you. The next step is I'm going to trust you, God, to put something back for my future. Because I believe you got a future for me. And we're trusting God all along this way. And that's the bridge that takes you from greed to generosity. It's just to simply trust God. What are you putting your trust in? And we as followers of Christ, we need to be God-hearted. In fact, we are God-hearted when you think about it. I mean, he lives in us. He lives in us. And we need to learn to let him control our lives from the inside out. From the heart out. And we know in the end, all of us know this, in the end we're going to be like him when we get to heaven. But you know in the spiritual world it's as if it's already done. 1 John four seventeen, it says, As he is, so we are in this world. In this world. As he is, so we already are in this world. We, we know God personally. If we know God personally, we mirror that in the world that we live in. So what's God all about? He's all about generosity. Go back to that proverb that we started with. Proverb chapter uh, 21. Verse 26, look at what it says in verse 26. Some people are always greeted for more, but the godly love to give. The godly give. Why? Because we never look more like God than when we're giving. We all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he finished, gave, right? We never look more like God than when we're giving. You'll see that today in the stands uh, of the football game. Somebody holding up a sign that says John 3, 16. Why why do we hold that up? Because that is about the heart of God. And it is about taking on the very heart and nature of God. And I want you to hear me today. My goal in my life and for my children is for us to be outrageously crazy, stupid, generous. That's my goal. And I'm not waiting for one day to start taking steps in that direction. There have been several times in the last 14 years where God has said, I want that savings account. I think something's happening in there, Alex, and I want you to give that to me, all of of it. And I want you to trust me, and I want you to walk in faith with me. And there have been moments where he has sensed, and there's nothing wrong with saving. I I was glad I saved because it was there. And, And there are moments, but he's been faithful at every step along the way. But here's what I know at 45 years of age. I know you didn't think I was that old. <laughs> Here's what I know at 45 years of age. To get to the place where I can be as outrageously generous as I want to be requires planning. It requires planning. It's not just faith. It's planning. And I am planning in faith to get to that place where I can do all that God wants to do through whatever he's put in my hands. And, and gratitude leads you to generosity. Generosity. But ingratitude leads you to materialism. It's an issue of the heart, right? Because if I'm over here going, thank you, God, for what I have and all you've given me, it it sets the stage. But if I'm over here going, I deserve more, I should have more, I want more, it sets the stage. You see, gratitude is the key. And, And by the way, if you're having trouble being grateful, drive around in a neighborhood worse than yours. Go to Egypt with me. You won't have any trouble after that with being grateful for what the Lord has blessed you with. None. You will have zero trouble after one trip into Egypt to watch and see what happens in that place. You'll come back and say, thank you, God, for a shirt and shoes and a bed to sleep in. And you will walk in gratitude, and they're going in opposite directions. And the question today is which way you want to go? Which way do you want to go? And being prepared for the end of your days on this side of eternity is incredibly important. But in a mad, mad rush to get, 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 save, store away, and have more, we need to make sure our hearts are guarded. And we got to guard this heart at all times, right? It's the wellspring of life is what the Scripture says. And if we aren't careful, our heart will follow that treasure into that bank account. And this is not a matter of a bank account. I don't really care about your bank account. I care about your heart. And at the end of the day, if you walk out of here and you learn how to save and you learn how to prepare and you become millionaires, but your heart is not chasing after God, I failed. The job that God gave me today. And it is not only about you being a better savior, it is about you letting God have complete control of your life on a daily basis. Let's pray together, every campus. And with all the heads bowed and all the eyes closed at all the campuses this morning, if you need to trust Christ, give your life to Jesus today. Would you just pray with me right where you are, out loud, just right where you're seated, just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And today I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, and my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I give you my whole life. And I receive salvation. Thank you for saving me. Amen.